Welcome to Ikigai Stories. I'm Sam Yushio. The goal of this podcast is to showcase people who are living with intention, working hard to align actions with priorities, and ultimately to provide a platform of inspiration for those seeking to live a life rooted in purpose. Kato Ishibashi is a critically acclaimed indie pop musician who goes by the stage name Kishi Bashi. His latest artistic creation, Omiyadi, is a feature-length film that follows his journey of discovery that brings him to the locations of the incarceration camps that stripped away the civil liberties of 120,000 U.S. citizens of Japanese descent during World War II. Kay was born in Seattle, grew up in Virginia, and currently lives in Athens, Georgia. Sparked by the increasing anti-immigration rhetoric and his personal reckoning as a minority in America, he set out to deploy his artistic talents to elevate the importance of history while imparting a message of perseverance and hope. The Japanese word omiyadi has no direct English translation, but is analogous to empathy, compassion, and altruism. Kay's story of omiyadi initially focused on the Japanese-American incarceration camps, but expanded into learning about the vast complexities of humanity and the importance of social equality as the foundation for a more sustainable society. Kay's journey as a musician includes leaving Cornell's engineering program to pursue education at the Berklee School in Boston as a jazz violinist. The debut title of his first solo album was called 151A, a tribute slash raw translation of the Japanese phrase Ichigo Ichie, which can be interpreted as one time, one meaning. The phrase is symbolic of the fact that every moment in life is unique and can't be repeated, prompting an appreciation of that moment and a deeper sense of gratitude. Placing value in the present moment can unlock a feeling of liberation from our quest for perfection that often keeps us playing it safe, not living our truth, and half-assing how we can improve humanity. Tapping into that mindset is a powerful force that Kay appears to have mastered in music, film, and in life. In an unplanned twist of fate, our conversation landed on Inauguration Day, roughly 90 minutes after Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were sworn in as the President and Vice President of the United States. That morning, I watched the inauguration ceremony, then re-watched the trailer of Omiyadi, and the intersection of those messages struck a deep, profound emotional chord. Most of us are trying to make sense of this complex, confusing world that we're living in. In that moment, the philosophy of Omiyadi provided a glimpse of clarity amidst the fog of uncertainty that many of us find ourselves drifting in and out of at this moment in time. Kishibashi's journey to Omiyadi, the song film, reminds us that empathy, compassion, and altruism serve as the bedrock of progress. We're at our best when we embody the spirit of Omiyadi and share our gifts and talents to support, inspire, and improve those around us. Now, please enjoy this episode of Ikigai Stories with Kei Ishibashi, musician, artist, and inspiration. Kei, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. When we initially scheduled this, this wasn't by design, but uh, we landed on Inauguration Day, and I think the symbol and significance oh, yeah. of this conversation on Inauguration Day, where roughly, I don't know, an hour, two hours ago, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were inaugurated. 
Uh, that's pretty cool. I don't. I, that wasn't by design on my part. I don't think that was by design on your part. We talked a couple months ago, looked at the calendar and said, how about this date? And it seemed to work out for both of us. But I think that's especially uh, relevant for, for this conversation. Um, so what I'd like to start off with first is just Omiyadi, the song film. Can you just start there and talk about, share what is uh, Omiyadi, the song film? Sure. Omoyari. So Omoyari is this um, is this artistic idea I had um, about four years ago, probably exactly four years ago today. You know, I, we, I had a kind of a reckoning, you know, with my own identities, you know, feeling as a minority in this country. And, uh, you know, and I'm Japanese American. Um, and I, you know, I felt I started to... Um, to look into my own artistic expression as a, as a voice, you know, for these feelings I was having, you know, to be able to communicate uh, these things to my listeners, you know, my fans. And uh, so I started writing an album and I also started making a movie. So a documentary movie. Uh, I didn't know it was going to be a feature length movie. Uh, it is now, but, um, and uh, about four years later, we have, we have like a 90 minute movie that involves the creation of my album and also all these performances and me really learning about minority identity and, and also the history of World War II, Japanese American incarceration. And, um, and omoyari, the word it means, um, is to have empathy, consideration for another person, you know, as, as the basis of, uh, you know, uh, of protecting everybody, all the marginalized people in communities or just being a better person in general. And, and I think it kind of resonates with, uh, with all, the, all the stories I was hearing. So did it initially start off as as an album and then morphed into uh, a film or what was the sequence there? Well, um, I had a orchestral piece, like a symphony I wrote. I was commissioned by this Symphony of Miami um, New Deco Ensemble to write this piece that included uh, visuals, audio visuals. And so I went to these incarceration camps and I, uh, I looked for inspiration. And... Uh, you know, I have the luxury, I'm a songwriter, so I have the luxury of creating an album every, you know, two years. And so I have a, a period of time where I can like, go go out and collect my thoughts and, and get inspired by whatever, I, whatever I'm doing, you know. And then in this case was clearly about a lot of research, historical research and, and uh, visiting uh, location-based improvisations and visiting these sites. So no, <laughs> it didn't start, it, it, yeah, it didn't start with music in mind, but I, I was there. What did that travel look like? I know just watching the trailer, you're, you're going all over the world. So can you, can you kind of hit the, the points where you visited? Yeah, there's um, a lot of it. Uh, I, I went with a group first uh, out of Brown University. It's a bunch of grad students. And we traveled the West Coast. Some of that, some of that was sleeping on floors and, you know, and stuff like that's what grad students do, I guess. Um, <laughs> I got hotels because <laughs> I'm older, you know, but because um, I'm not in a punk band, you know, and uh and so uh, a lot of it was just, uh, you know, visiting the sites, going to museums, um, talking to some incarcerees, like former incarcerees. Um, uh, a lot of the people I was traveling with had family, you know, who had been incarcerated. And so they had like, uh, you know, personal motivation um, to to kind of see this for themselves, you know. And um, I had not, you know, I, my, I, my parents are post-war. So for me, it was like, a, it, for me, it was a civil rights issue, you know. It's like, it could have been me. These people are citizens, you know, how could they kind of thing. Um, and I was just really in, interested in the, in this topic of, uh, because there's a lot of parallels, you know, to four years ago when Trump took office that it, you know, there's a lot of Islamophobia and anti-immigration rhetoric that was very, 
very similar to pretty much what had caused, you know, the incarceration of, of a race of people, you know, in World War II, you know, this hysteria. And, um, and so, uh, let's see, I, I think, so, you know, we, that was like a couple of weeks. So we go a week and then, you know, I do a concert every time I went to one of the cities, um, to kind of ra- raise money to pay for, you know, some of like an extra rental vehicle or something. Um, and then, uh, and you know, then I go about doing my own stuff. And then like a month later, if we find more money, then kind of go out for another trip. And I went to the South, you know, I went to Jerome and Rower in Arkansas. And on the way there, we went to Selma and, um, uh, you know, Birmingham I played a show there. And basically it's like, you know, what I first re- what I thought was a singular incident that I was a singular historical moment that I was looking at, I, I started to really see a wider kind of like universal message that I was really, really interested in, which is basically the suppression of minority identity throughout the history of the United States. And that's the basis of this film. You know, it's like, it's not just this one thing. There's parallels in every single corner of our history where we, where we just basically either incarcerate murder or, you know, suppress like minorities or marginalized communities in this country. And, so, and you know, so I went to the South and I kind of learned a lot. I wrote a song about um, uh, like Jim Crow era, uh, uh, like prison labor, you know, forced prison labor. It's called convict leasing, you know, and I, you know, which I learned when I went there, when I went to the slavery museum in, in Selma. Um, and then uh, it just transformed into this larger project. Uh, but the album, you know, the music, uh, an album doesn't take four years, you know, so I had to, so I made the album in the process. Mm-hmm. I put that out like a couple of years ago, like a couple of years ago, you know, and, uh, but this documentary, uh, it, it, it follows me creating this album, you know, as I'm traveling. So, uh, so you went to the South, spent some time on the West coast. I believe you, you did, had a trip to Japan. I, yeah. So, yeah. So part of that, thanks for, <laughs> I forgot what this question was about. Um, yeah. So I did go to Japan because, uh, you know, my mom's from Okinawa and that was like, uh, you know, she was on like the, the losing side of the war. And, you know, the Battle of Okinawa was this awful, um, this, uh, this uh, really brutal attack, you know, and, and uh, you know, which ended up in like a quarter of Okinawan civilian population being dead, you know, because of just the, because of the way they were kind of, tr- they're kind of treated as can- cannon fodder between the, the mainland Japanese troops. You know, Okinawa is this like small island. It's kind of like the Hawaii uh, and they have their indigenous, they have indigenous kind of sort of indigenous people they speak japanese but with a dialect that mainlanders can't understand you know and so um you know i went to okinawa to kind of see because at the same time of japanese incarceration you know this is happening in okinawa so my parents ancestors and so i went to there and i went um to iga iga ueno which is where my dad's from and it's this kind of iga iga ninja is like really famous uh it's a famous japanese ninja clan um it's like uh, it was. It helped the Tokyo, um, the Edo Emperor, uh, the Edo Shogun, like escape, and he was a huge. It was a huge part of like um, Edo history, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, I kind of just went there to get to get a cultural experience of connecting all these these things of like what was happening during World War II, what was you know what what are you know I learned a lot about Japanese immigration before you know before the war. But I wanted to know, you know, what what my maybe my relatives' lives were like in Japan, and so I went to Japan. Um, I also went to where else did I go? I spent a lot of time in Wyoming, Heart Mountain. Mm. And so, so before you make that jump to to Wyoming, yeah. your 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 parents um, were born in Japan. They were 
first generation immigrants. Right? Yeah. Uh, so they were alive during the war, during World War II. No, no, that they were they were born like born, right born at the post. end. Yeah, post. Okay. Yeah, right at the end. They're boomers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, and then they immigrated to the states when they were uh, adults. Yeah, yeah, they met. As, right? Yeah, they met as college kids in, in UW actually. Okay. So. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you were born in Seattle. Yeah, I was born in Seattle. Yeah, 1975. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you, they're Issei. Your Nisei. Yeah, or Shin Nisei, as, it, as I like, they like to call it. <laughs> did you know this? Okay. Oh, wait. I did not know this. What does that mean? Uh, the Japanese-American community, uh, the incarcerated, post-incarcerated community has labeled um, us, like, post-war immigrants as Shin Issei, Shin Nisei. Like, and that stands for? Oh, new. He's new. Oh, okay. okay. New first generation, new second generation. Okay, okay. yeah. It's, I, I didn't learn about it until I started researching <laughs> But yeah, the, yeah, it's a different. I guess it's different. It, it's culturally feels different. It's um, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's it, typically when I when I think of Nisei, I think of my my grandparents, right? Mm. Um, so the fact that you're Nisei and we're approximately the same age, we're Gen X, right? Mm -hmm. I'm yeah, yeah. You're Gen X, oh yeah, right? Nirvana, all that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I just think of Nirvana. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I like, okay, for example, a big cultural difference is that, like, when I think of people my parents' age, they all have accents. Mm. You know what I mean? So to see, like, a, a super, like, white-sounding, old, Asian, Japanese, you know, Japanese guy is kind of a little foreign to me. Yeah. You know, it's like, that, yeah. and that's, I think that's a huge difference um, culturally, because I, I didn't grow up in a community, you know, in America. It's kind of isolated. So you grew up in Virginia, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in Virginia, um, also upstate New York, Ithaca. There's there's Japanese people there, but my, my parents pretty much home. Yeah, I guess they only hung out with the actual you know Japanese people like from Japan, like mm. like college professors. And my my parents are professors, so okay, academic okay. like researchers from Japan. You know those types of people. So there, but all those old the old people my parents hung out with had accents. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's an, I mean, that's, I think that's probably a, a typical experience. It's atypical for my experience because my experience was, you know, my, my grandparents were, were Nisei and they both spoke fluent English. I, actually, they didn't even speak fluent Japanese. Um, so we can dig into that a little bit later, but it's a, it's an interesting construct. So I, I cut you off before you were making the shift to, oh, yeah. to uh, Heart Mountain. Yeah, so um, Heart Mountain, uh, right, you know, 10 miles from Cody, Wyoming, which is like Buffalo Bill, uh, Buffalo, he's like, he created Cody, I think. It's just, this is like desert mountain region, um, this huge mountain in the middle, Heart Mountain. Um, and so I think Aaron, Aaron Aoyama, who's one of the um, people in my documentary, uh, she was in the first trip and I became really close friends with her and she had a grandmother in Heart Mountain. And so she was working there and we kind of visit her there and we'd also like film a lot there. And that kind of became the central location. Um, uh, also my co-director lives in Montana. So it was like three hours from there. So it was, it was like this really, uh, and, and we, be, we, we befriended like, you know, the, the museum, uh, the interpretive center there. And um, I don't know, we just spent a lot of time there. Uh, I, and I take my, my, my daughter out there, you know, for, in the summers and we've like, just really enjoyed the mountain. So it was, it was a half vacation research slash, uh, you know, getting to know the community there and uh, made some great friends there. So 
yeah, hard mountain. It's it's a and we also like to climb the mountain too. You know, so it's like a it's like a eight hour hike. You know, but beautiful. So, hard mountain was a huge inter incarceration center. Had about like eleven thousand people, maybe peak population, something like that. So, right, right, yeah. There's um, there's a picture that I tracked down on somewhere on social media. I think it was on your Instagram that had, it was a picture of you and your, your father and then your daughter. So three generations <laughs> at Hard Mountain. Oh yeah. And you were holding the violin and your dad was holding the saxophone. I thought that was really cool. Oh yeah. Yeah. I was going to bring my violin and he's like, Oh, I'm going to take my sax. You know? <laughs> yeah. He started, he's been starting, he plays sax. He like, uh, he's, he just practices every day. He's, uh, he's, he's got, uh, yeah, he can play melodies. Yeah. His time is a little, uh, uh, um, not professional, but you know, it's okay. It's okay. It's a hobby. You know, he's like a, he's like a civil engineer. So it's fine. yeah. Yeah. Having a son as a professional musician is probably a little bit tough uh, when you're, when you're trying to you know, get your timing down on the sack. Uh, I mean, he sat in, he sat in with a, in a couple shows, like he played some melodies, you know? Oh really? That's yeah. Cool. But basically he, we have to follow him basically. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's how it works. Um, so, so that, that, uh, so Sarah at Heart Mountain on the trailer. So the, the film isn't released yet. No, um, no. but in the trailer or, uh, I think it's in the trailer or some of the, the kind of mini releases that you pushed out. Uh, there's a part where Sarah's looking at the, Oh, Aaron, you mean Aaron or Aaron, sorry, Aaron, yeah. Aaron. Yeah. Um, she's looking at the, um, you know, the, like the ledger, right. Mm -hmm. Of and finds her grandmother. And that's uh, such a powerful moment in yep. the story. Yeah. She's kind of like trying to imagine, you know, what it's like to be a teenager. It's probably like 19, I guess her grandmother, you know? So it's like to, to think of herself, like basically just, I don't know, protecting your, doing your best for your entire community. That's being uprooted, you know, trying coming forward and setting up a, a camp and, you know, a livable, situation in the desert you know um it's pretty interesting i thought yeah yeah so when you when you look at all those locations that you visited is there a is there a particular moment in one of those locations that just really struck you that sticks out um well i'm not sure i mean a lot of times in the beginning when i went to you know i visited manzanar which is uh, close to LA, uh, like three hours from LA. And, you know, it was really difficult to, to kind of, um, you know, empathize, uh, to kind of like process the thing. And a lot, and a lot of us were having these problems, you know, uh, because it's like, it was actually quite pleasant, you know, <laughs> the weather was nice. The mountains are beautiful, you know, and you go there and you think like, you know, what are we in? Are we in a, are we in a memorial? Are we in like a, a cemetery? Are we in like, you know, what is this place? And it's like, oh, it's, it's just a place that has this history, you know? And I think, um, I, more than the locations, I think it's like the stories that you hear and that's and the stories, how you hear that you hear and how similar they are to yours, your own personal experiences. That's when I can really, when I really get moved, you know, to, to empathize with that history. Um, I think a lot of, um, when I was visiting, um, I think like Heart Mountain also like I, I started to feel like there was a lot of Japanese culture there because uh, the Nisei story is the Nisei 
is where the you know the people who have who who really kind of rose up you know uh, because of because they were completely american you know rose up and and really activated uh the redress movement and like and 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 fought for you know uh uh acknowledgement you know of this event um but a lot of the isays the the the, immig- the true immigrants you know that were kind of caught between you know their native country that was that they're at war with and their new country that they that was their home you know that they their voices were really kind of suppressed like all the culture you know and i think that that i could really that was really painful to when i started to realize that um <clears throat> that it was necessary to have this like um all american voice you know to 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 be like look we play baseball we you know we play baseball we you know we listen to we play american music we don't have accents how could you lock us up? And that was the, that was the narrative for the longest time, and it was necessary because that Americans couldn't understand, like white people could not understand otherwise, right? But yeah. I think like there was a whole immigrant population that was really just suppressed, kind of living in the shadows of just you know they were just being beaten down, you know, forced to assimilate or forced their children to assimilate, and that's why probably a lot of people like they wouldn't speak Japanese is because it's, it was a survival tactic, right? Whereas, like, I I don't have that benefit. I mean, I don't have the, uh, you know, I never ever had to think I shouldn't speak Japanese. You know, I always thought it was kind of cool that I could have people, people love anime now, you know, <laughs> and they, they, they love the food and, you know, it's not, it's totally fine or even maybe cool to be, to have Japanese culture now. But 75 years ago, it was not, not the case. Yeah, it's definitely flipped from a, from a, from a negative to a positive in the last, what, 70 80 years so if we take a big big step back like like what was there a moment that you can reflect on that prompted and you referenced this a bit roughly four years ago but was there was there a like a catalyst that <laughs> you, mean, you decided like this is it that i'm like yeah you mean Omiyati is <laughs> what i'm gonna do and this is how i'm gonna do it you mean our our 46 president donald trump it's <laughs> kind of like he had he had a lot of aid he had um he was him and some of his aides were mentioning that like they're going on TV talking about the Muslim ban and uh, bringing up Japanese American internment. You know, they're like, we've profiled immigrants before. Look, you know, this like this this uh, you know with the internment, and they were getting a lot of shit from the Japanese American community. You know, because um, you know they're and I couldn't believe, I just couldn't believe it. You know, because it's like this was clearly a miscarriage of justice. You know, and they're bringing it up as like precedent for this Muslim ban that they're that they're trying to push. You know, with the same implications. You know, of just rounding up people based on race. You know, so um, that was really that really kind of pissed me off. And then, um, and then I think it's New Year's and I New Year's resolution. I was like, maybe I won't drink so much. And so I had a, I had a whole month where I did a lot of reading, so sober and a lot of reading. And then uh, and I I kind of got up to speed with a lot of history. Um, and that was when I was writing, you know, this symphony piece. On the trailer, you, know, you have a voiceover, and I've listened to that a couple times. And it's the words that you're saying on that that voiceover are so powerful, and it especially struck me today. So, you know, there's there's a a line. I think you kind of close the the voiceover where you say. Maybe one day they'll look back at this time and proclaim that this was when we finally started to listen, when we begin to understand that we had much more in common than we once knew, 
that we all desire the same things, to have a home, to be loved, to be understood, and we started to believe in our potential to save ourselves from our own destruction. I think that's especially powerful today and the moment that we're in and you know this this kind of uh transition toward hope optimism healing uh and i'm just curious about that statement on the voiceover and how that statement strikes you today yeah you know initially i was i was worried that you know we we need to finish this movie before you know the election because it's on everybody's mind you know these politics and how divisive it is um and then I realized that uh, the I, I I watched a trailer you know recently and it's it's definitely um, it it still has a, the same message and same with our film as well it's a lot of it it's about really um, it's not about being angry about the past or being angry about or, or being um, disillusioned about America and democracy in America it's it's about um, kind of like cherishing uh, your your humanity. And like really getting to the root of like what caused these problems to understand them and then to move on and and to unify and and to kind of like have this uh it was it was a message of like um i, I and i it's a t- philosophy i've kind of de- developed over the you know for myself and in that like you know being a human being is a very special thing it's like it's it's almost like impossible from like a physics standpoint for us to be alive doing a podcast you know, <laughs> you know, talking, uh, I don't know, 3000 miles from each other. You know what I mean? There's, we go to space, we harness, you know, nuclear fusion. I mean, fission. And it's like, there's, it's like, it's a, it's like a miracle that we can like, we're alive right now. So to fall into an animalistic, like xenophobic kind of rat race, which is the rest of the animal kingdom is like, um, I think, I, I would hope that, you know, as the more sophisticated we get and the more we intelligent we get, you know, that we will protect ourselves, you know, and not fall back into like the worst of what, what our potential is. And so, yeah. so I think like a lot of it has to do with, you know, whatever you do has to come from a place of love. You know, you have to understand that, you know, at the end of the day, you should be able to forgive some one another and like kind of um, just move on and then do the best, protect everybody you know, protect everybody, protect yourself, especially, you know, if you're not, if you're not in a war torn region or like, or having a famine, I mean, we, we do have a pandemic, but you know, um, like we should, we should be better. We should be the, you know, the best version of of ourselves, I think at all times. So, yeah. Well said, very well said. Ichigo, Ichie, Mm -hmm. that phrase. Can you, can you talk about it? So, so to tie that, that, that phrase to what you just said, you know, it's very symbiotic, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we, how do we appreciate the moment relative to all the men being grateful for all the the blessings and the opportunities that we have, mm-hmm. um, especially in a, you know, in living in at this time in history uh, in America, right? So, so can you talk about what does the phrase mean? Can you just yeah. kind of, the, yeah. The, philosophy of the phrase and then what does it mean to you and how has it impacted your journey yeah ichigo ichie is one time one meeting a meeting you know between two people and so it's uh it's this wabi-sabi aesthetic of just um you know cherish this unique moment between you two be it good or bad or flawed um and that it's unique to that one moment in time and so 
it's uh for me it's like a it's a creative philosophy in that um you can't just get hung up on trying to create like a masterpiece right? that your art your you know what your statement if you write a novel if you make an album or you a painting it's a statement it's just a snapshot on your creative point at that moment in time and i think that frees up if you get that in your head then it kind of frees up a lot of anxiety you might have of of always trying to achieve perfection which is almost impossible you know and so that's uh that's what that's that's what ichigo ichie is and it's a japanese like aesthetic you know i think it started with like tea ceremony but a lot of uh, martial arts people use it as well you know as an inter you know when you're interacting with another you know uh or if you're fight, fighting someone you know even if you get beat it's like oh that was a good fight you know and so like we did well and that was like that was unique to that one moment in time you know and so um how does that relate to <laughs> uh, the current movie i mean it's 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 about cherishing life you know every second at a time you know like and like like wow that just happened the outcome was not what i expected but you know it's beautiful for that reason well so maybe less about the the movie but more about just your personal journey so so i know ichigo ichie was the 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 motivation or the impetus, a catalyst for you on your solo act, right? Yeah. So and I, can you talk about kind of frame that a little bit yeah. on your personal journey? So before then I was, you know, I was in a band and we we're always trying I was always trying to get like um there's a lot of pressure to just succeed. You know, I was living in New York City, I had a kid, it was just like it was uh everything had to be you're always like screaming for attention, you know, when you live in New York. Right. And so like what I had to do was I had to like leave my band and just go solo. And so being a solo artist actually is great because um, if you don't, if it doesn't too, do too well, you know, you can just make another album and just, and it, it's really just on you. It's like writing a novel, you know, you, if you're a novelist as opposed to, I don't know, running a company or something, you know, if you run a company and you fail, if you fail your whole, you're failing a bunch of people with you. Right. As opposed to like, if you're a novelist, you just fail yourself and you can just move on your you know? And so it took me a while to realize that that is what you have to do to, uh, to, you know, to kind of break off. And, um, I'm sorry. I, I realized that if you break off and just be your own creative voice, then there's a, it frees you up from all these like pressures to completely succeed you know, in the way, whatever you, whatever success is to you, you know, it's a, it's a pure creative moment. And in turn, that actually helps you to connect with more people because people see that purity of emotion. They see that, that purity of a human being in art and, and music and everything. They, you know, that's what connects to people. It's not like a great melody or, or a cool beat, which does connect, you know, but it's, it's to see a person within that music. It's, and that's how I, I feel like is the most powerful way to connect with people. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. So there was with, so you launched Ichigo Ichie on Kickstarter, right? And I watched that video. Right. And in that video, you had said something to the effect of you just embraced the, your, the Japanese language that you're fluent in the Japanese language, but there was a line in there where you said, like you were, it was, maybe it was embarrassing. I don't know if that was the actual, that was kind of the the, the frame of the word. Mm -hmm. um, can you unpack that a little bit? Just yeah. that, 
I think a transition identity transition. I think I know what you're talking about. Basically, it's like, you know, before then I was writing, you know, I was an indie rock singer songwriter, which is a very, very white genre, you know. And I think I was always just, uh, I was had a, I was just kind of hiding, you know. I was just being that trying to fit in to what that what I thought that would be, which is just a, a, a indie hipster white guy vibe, you know. And then I started realizing that. Um, you know what, I've got this whole other language that has like these unique characteristics that I could could incorporate into my music. And that's when I started to just dive into it, not being embarrassed about it. And, um, you know, I still had the thing where I, I didn't want to be a world music musician, which is like a different category. You know, I wanted to be an indie rock musician with Japanese flavorings, you know. And so I was careful not to cross that boundary. But um but I, I did it in a way that I thought was kind of hip and cool. And I, I think at the time people were just like, oh, that's like really unique. And I think it helped me stick out. Uh, but I also embraced it. And and that was probably the beginning of me being able to embrace my culture and not being embarrassed about my my dual heritage, you know. You know, the Ichigo Ichi A, uh, I saw somewhere that you said it had liberated you, like this quest for perfection had limited which is pro I think that's that's true for everyone. I think that's got to be especially true for um, creatives. So if you can't be authentic and true to yourself, your ability to deliver you know pure creativity uh, isn't there. Yeah, well, yeah, like for example, like if you you know I'm like writing a song for my old band, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be such a pop hit. you know if you go yeah. if you go about your life trying to write pop hits, it's going to be, it's such a struggle, you know, you should just go about writing songs you feel great about. And then one of them will, will become popular. Cause what is popular? Popular means it's a lot of people like it. It means you're connecting with a lot of people. And so the pure, the truer you are to your own, like, you know, emotion is like the, the better chance you have at like connecting with a lot of people and becoming popular pop music, you know, it's like, which is what I do, you know? <laughs> Cause I had yeah. basically, yeah. And I don't discount pop music cause it's like, that's, that's how I make my living. It's the more popular I am, the more, the more money and more people come to my shows, you know? And so it's, a, it's a, yeah, I'm a pop musician. A mine. Well, yeah. So let's, <laughs> let, so let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your music. Um, I, I spent some time listening to your music and I gotta say, I didn't know about the music before I know people who, who are familiar with your music and your music is great. I loved it. I, I tracked down. There was um, an NPR tiny desk. Yeah, the tiny desk. Yeah, that was that was huge for me. Actually, it was a uh, that was incredible. That was one of my incredible. earliest incarnations of Kishibashi solo. <laughs> so yeah. So can you talk about your music and just the creative process behind your music and and um, you know what inspires you to write music and make music? Yeah. So in the beginning. Um, you know, I had been a violinist. Like that was my, I was a violinist when I was a kid. I was pretty serious about it in high school, like classical music. And then when I went to college, you know, I dropped out of Cornell to go to, to study jazz violin at, at Berkeley in Boston. And so it was a pretty big commitment. Like violin was my thing, improvising on violin. And so um, I think what always, the what always made a connection for people, like what, what always helped, you know, as much as I wanted to be a guitar rock singer you know 
playing the violin, playing the violin made the biggest connections for me. It always, it always helped me the most because I was really good at it. You know, it's easy for me to like improvise on violin because I studied it so much, you know? Um, and so I started playing with like, uh, the big, my big break was like playing with Regina Spector. I think she's this great, who's really popular. She's a pop artist, singer songwriter. And I was playing, I did her huge like world tour. And then, and I joined this band of Montreal, uh, which is really at the time was one of the coolest indie rock bands you could be in. And so, um, so I got to join that and I started to realize that this, and it was probably because of my violin playing, you know? And so, um, and I'm not like the best violinist, but I'm, I'm I know how to blend in and 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 help the music, you know. And so um, that's when I started realizing because with my old rock band Jupiter One, I was just like this guitar rock singer guy jumping around doing scissor kicks, trying you know just trying what they call you know trying a little too hard. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> and then when I started doing. Um, so I had the opportunity to to open up solo for Regina Spector in um in Australia, and so I couldn't take my band because it was just too expensive. As an you know, no, no way. And so I went there, and I, I was forced to play solo. You know, like so I just had my violin. I think she let me use her guitar for a couple songs. So I had a solo opening set, and that's when I realized I sold so many CDs. Like back in the day, it was like I brought over like. 50 CDs and I sold them out like first night. And then I had to bootleg CDR from like Sydney or Melbourne or something. Yeah. (laughs) And I came back with like, okay, so they're selling CDs for $25 Australian each, which was one to one to us dollars. So I came back with like $5,000 like in my pocket, you know, undeclared. Um, And, and it, it, it blew me away. I was like, wow, I don't need my band. You know, and at the time, <laughs> at the time, I wasn't really getting along with them either, because it was our career was really, it was really tough to maintain. You know, um, and so that's when I realized, that, okay, maybe I need to really push myself with violin. And so I started focusing on uh, really pushing the limits of violin improvisation. And that's when I got into looping. You know, and and I had this whole aesthetic. You know, so I created Ichigo Ga my you know one five one a with with a lot of this looping sound and, and it was really experimental. And then when I went out solo doing, you know, these shows by myself, either opening or doing small shows by myself, it was like, I had this whole aesthetic of look at me. I'm just one person with violin, maybe I'm beatboxing and like, you know, and it, and it, I think that's when I realized, um, cause Reg- Regina Spector is really good at this. Um, you should, I don't know if you know her, but you should definitely, she's, she's pretty popular, really brilliant songwriter. Um, uh, and she could just, she would like halfway through the show, she would just, the band would leave, we would leave and she'd just be solo, you know, and mm-hmm. command, c- completely command the audience and people are like crying and you know what I mean? And it's like, and I'd read in the newspaper the next day, like, oh, I wonder what they said about the show, you know, and they're, they're reading and they're like, and one of the reviewers are like, oh, I couldn't couldn't wait for the band to leave and it's just me and regina you know (laughs) i was like oh uh, you know and i was like that's when i realized i was like you can have so much intimacy with the audience when you're solo you know you you need a band to kind of party you know to get to that that to raise the roof but there's a lot to be said of of a single voice in an instrument and pumped you know with your favorite song if you if you like if you already know the music it's to just like do that and so that was a huge part of my aesthetic was to basically create a huge sound by myself 
with loops and beatboxing and then have, have intimacy with the audience. And that really kind of like really helped my, the early part of my career. And that, and that tiny desk concert you saw was kind of a, a version of that, you know, I think there's some beatboxing in this. There's no bit. All I had was that little speaker behind me <laughs> that they gave me, yeah. you know, and, yeah. but the, the whole idea of, look, I'm just doing this all by myself um, kind of resonated with a lot of people. And I think it's kind of like, um, like I say watching like Olympic sports, you know, it's like they're going for the, the triple lux or quadruple lux or whatever. And it's like, you know, it's you, you're rooting for that success, you know, of that person, as opposed to you go see what Disney on ice or something. And they, they don't do those really difficult things. They do like the triple lux or double lux, you know, they don't go, for, yeah. or maybe they're, I don't know, maybe they're professional and they're actually better than Olympic amateur athletes, but it's the whole thing. And people want to, you know, there's a humanity there that people want to see that they resonate with. And so that was a big part of the early part of my career. Now I have a band, but uh, even in my shows today, you know, I have like, well, not today, right now, <laughs> obviously, but, um, you know, I'll still have like a 90 minute or maybe even a two hour show and half of it, like 30 minutes will be solo mm. and people love it, mm. you know, and it gives, yeah. it gives a dynamic, you know. Yeah. So can you, can you explain looping? I know what it is now because I've, I, I some listeners may not know what it is. Uh, I know what it is because I watched the, the tiny desk, but can you, can you describe it? Yeah. It's like a, it's a guitar pedal that basically um, allows you to just record over, uh, like a, over yourself and it's, it's pretty quick and basically lets you create a big sound. And some people make beats out of it, but I, I make beats and I'll also make like ambient sounds you can. Um, and so yeah, it's a it's just a tool, you know, that I use. Yep. So I'm curious, how much of that is Im improvisational? Like, how much of it is just in the moment versus very scripted and tightly, um, you know, tightly defined? Uh, a lot of it's in the moment. You know, I, I still I really like that aspect of of playing of looping. But if I'm trying to do a song, sometimes I, I always challenge myself to, if I have a song. Um, you know, most of my albums are fully produced and they don't have too much looping in them. You know, they have a whole band in them. And, but sometimes I want to like challenge, challenge myself and say, I wonder if I can do this song looped, you know, solo looped, which is a challenge because violins aren't really like accompany, accompanying instruments, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, but I usually end up doing it and it requires some composition because you have to like pre-compose like the orchestration parts, you know, cause I'm creating like an orchestra with these loops, you know, so it, it involves a little thinking and, um, strategizing, you know, yeah. and practice. Yeah. But yeah, a little, a little bit, I hate practicing. So just a little bit of practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you did beatbox on that tiny desk and when you beatbox, I was like, wow, he's beatboxing. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was a cool twist. Um, you know. was, um, was Reggie Watts, was he doing the looping stuff? Yeah, like, yeah, you know, Reggie. So, yeah. so, yeah. so, funny story. I mean, I, I know of him. I saw his TED talks. And yeah, funny story is that um, he was opening up for Regina Spector for a whole European tour when I was traveling. So we traveled with him for a little bit, and he was kind of an inspiration in the beginning because he just he would just show up with like uh, a loop, his loop pedal, and then like that's it. Yeah, and then he'd plug it in, yeah. and then he have because he's an incredible singer and like performer, you know, and a comedian, and so yeah. it was yeah. really. I was like, man, this guy can just like rock the house with just that, you know, that ten pound that ten pound pedal that he just came in from, you know, flew in yeah. flew in with, and that was kind of an inspiration. <laughs> yeah. 
And then, you know, yeah. he actually gave me my big break because he, he didn't show up in Berlin for the rest of the tour. <laughs> and then I got, that's when I, oh. that was the beginning of like my, so I, they, it was kind of a crisis actually. Like he didn't, he couldn't, something happened. I don't know. He couldn't make it to Berlin. Yeah. And so they needed an opener yeah. and I, and I offered it to Regina and she let me. So that was my, my oh wow. thanks. Thanks Reggie. But he, yeah, he's true, really? true inspiration. Yeah. That guy's amazing. Were you doing the the looping uh, that, at that time uh, when you got on stage in Berlin? Trying to think, uh, I was I was always doing looping, but not like I would make ambient sounds to accompany like the band that I was playing in, but never like I, I would never depend on it for for an actual rhythmic musical accompaniment, you know. And that's why he was like I wouldn't I wouldn't make a beat on it and like yeah. and and sing over it. That you know I, I would never I would never have done that. So that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. His stuff, uh, his stuff's yeah. solid. Yeah. And uh, I've seen some of his comedian, like, I forgot that that show that he was on. That, that, uh, oh, Comedy Bang Bang. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so wacky and zany, yeah. but he's, he's good there too. Yeah. There's a, there's a couple other people. Andrew Bird is a great violinist singer. He was an inspiration too. Um, and this guy named Owen, yeah. Owen Pallet, who's a, Canadian violinist um, Looper. Those are like my two kind of inspirations for starting looping violin, at least. So I think there's there's some type of parallel. There's like a metaphor. The looping process. I would expect. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, did you ever set out to be a, a documentarian or a, a, a filmmaker? Um, not a documentarian. You know. Um, I'd always, you know, I've been pretty involved in my uh, music videos, you know, and I love animation. I've done some animation before, but, or directed some, but uh, this kind of, no, in the beginning, I was really bad at interviewing people. And, you know, I was, I was not a very articulate person, not that I'm articulate now, but I was really bad <laughs> like four years ago, you know, um, I didn't know, I didn't have a way to articulate a lot of what I was doing, you know, to explain to people. Um, now I'm like a, a pretty good interviewer, you know, I know, I know how to, to keep people, keep the, keep them in their seat, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and giving me good, good stuff. But, um, yeah, it's a, no, but I, I definitely, this is something I, I want to continue to do. There's a lot of things, I, other, other things. Um, I, I guess like the idea of song film, I think I'm, it's like a new medium that I'm, we're trying to create here, you know? So it's about like, mm music and history together because just a history doc by itself is really um it's it's difficult to get into you know you have to be in a certain mindset but if it includes music i feel like it makes it easier and uh um and so there's a couple things like that we're, we're not covering in the movie that you know i'd still like to to deep dive in with with music in the future you know like yeah maybe more of okinawa or even the south you know this convict leasing i don't think we ever covered it in this film it's just too tangential you know so this this so i'm i'm fascinated by this like looping concept that you deploy in your music and how you just create an orchestra out of one person and you know with a little bit of exploration like you'll put something out i think in one 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 of the the songs that you did in tiny desk like my maybe my read on this was wrong but it seemed like something started to go it might have been the first beatbox that I was seeing a nonverbal that maybe it wasn't hitting, <laughs> hitting the way you wanted it to hit. 
Um, yeah, that happens all the time. But then you just get continued, you know, massaging it and getting it to the point where it where it was. Um, that growth mindset, right? Like you got to try something in order to know if it works, uh, and you'll never know until you take that step. So that that philosophy, that like life philosophy, very present in your music, seems like it's been very present in your journey into, you know, uh, Omayati with a film just can you can you can you talk can you riff on that a little bit just yeah like on the inside i think like um for any like artist growth or or a personal growth of any kind you know if you're a business owner or whatever you, you have to like you have to keep trying new things you know because it's like um i'm of the philosophy that you know if you do something for several years you're going to be good at it enough to the point that you know it's going to be it could be a part of your career you know and so like, you know, if people, if you're passionate about something, if you stick to it, what is it like the 20, 10,000 hour rule or something, you know, if you stick, mm-hmm. if you stick to it, you're going to, you're going to achieve a, a level of mastery and experience that, that people will want, you know? And so with documentary filmmaking, you know, this is my first foray, but four years later, I, I, I kind of know how to do it, you know, not that it's done yet, but that's the hardest part is finishing the movie. But, um, yeah. But you know what I mean? So like with looping and um, stuff like that, you know, um, on a tangential note, you know, like performing live is, is, is a, the audience is really forgiving, you know, because when they see you doing something challenging, it's like uh, in the same way that I explained before with like Olympic sports, it's like they're rooting for you, you know? And if you mess up, you know, they want to see you succeed. You know, if you, cry and walk off stage that's you know that's embarrassing but you know you try your best not to get you know you prepare enough so that you don't fall into that of a humiliating state but you know but messing up is totally part of is part of being a human being you know and i I think i think people like to see people who who get who try you know as opposed to people who just you know there's no movie every any movie with like a guy who's like oh i don't know and then and then they redeem themselves or they give it a shot at the end. You know, that's always, that's the movie that people want to see. <laughs> they don't want to see the guy who never tries, you know what I mean? Right. Right. So I think, yeah. I think you, you just got to give it a go. And then if you're passionate about it, you should. Hero's journey. Hero's journey. Exactly. Uh, so, so let's, I'm going to take it back a little bit further back to, um, you know, you started off on the engineering path at Cornell <laughs> and then somewhere along the line, you decided I'm going to pump the brakes and go an entirely different direction. Yeah. Right. So back to that stage in life, can you, can you talk about just what that journey looked like or that stage in life and how you came to that conclusion that you're shifting gears? Well, um, I'm, you know, I'm really lucky to have very supporting parents, you know? Um, but I think when I was graduating high school, I was pretty serious about violin, but there was never an inkling in my head that I could be a professional, you know, concert violinist or even an orchestral violinist i was just not of that caliber i could tell myself um and so i went to engineering school my dad actually taught at cornell so i think he maybe gave me his one of his buddies gave me a character uh letter character endorsement you know (laughs) dr dr jenkins uh gave me a character endorsement um which i think helped you know ivy league that's legacy that's how it works yeah so uh and my sats were fine my grades were fine you know get going into it um but when i went there i i, I entered this like music dorm 
that's what I want. It's called jam. And it, basically I was just jamming every single day and snowboarding. And basically my roommate was this super smart, like kid from mainland China. And like he, I think I probably copied some of his homework and he, <laughs> he was really smart. He's in finance. Actually, honestly, all my buddies in engineering are now in finance. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're all, I can't think of anybody who's still an engineer of all my buddies from uh, college, yeah. you know? Um, um, but yeah. And then I, and then I, I, you know, I was put on a- academic probation as really bad at like uh, chemistry. I was awful at chemistry. And at that point I was playing in bands and I realized that I just needed to, I was really into this jazz violin. That was my thing, like improvising on violin. And so I went to the one school in America or probably the world that taught jazz violin, which was in Berkeley, Boston. And so I went studied with this one teacher. who's like pretty famous educator now. So that's my, it's the beginning of beginning of that part of the story. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, so, you know, I come across a lot of students that are, especially, I don't know what, how old, what year were you? Were you a freshman, sophomore year when you made that switch? Yeah. Fresh sophomore. Yeah. I, I got through two years barely. So I, come across quite a few students that are at this pivotal moment where, you know, I've got to ace all these tests and I've got to get the right internship to get the right job. Maybe, maybe uh, the engineering school was telling you, you know, engineering school isn't right. Maybe they were telling you, but at some point you had to embrace this, this, um, you know, I want to, I want to explore music. So, yeah, well, I, I, I like. Can you just come pack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think what I realized is that a lot of people are just getting into engineering um, because they just thought it would land them a good job, you know. And you know, it can be fun. There's like a lot of technical challenges that can keep you stimulated. But you know, if you're if you're just in it for the money, that's why that's why I could see you just going into finance. You know, eventually, you just want to make more money. Um, right. So. I think your your heart has to be in, in it, you know, but it, it could be in any field. If you're really into finance, you could just, that, that could be your thing. Maybe you're into finance, you know, <laughs> you know, Sam, yeah. <laughs> so that's why you're yeah. finance, you know, but, or maybe you just want to make a lot of money. I don't know, but that's, that's what I mean. So if your passion is in it um, and I, I, and to some extent you have to be kind of skilled, but you can build skill, you know, but the passion is like the first part about it. So if you're not studying something that you're passionate about, it's a, it's going to be an uphill struggle, I would think. So, switch gears again. Let's let's bring it into the the current day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as you as we think about inauguration day today and what the next four years looks mm-hmm. like. Um, oh, I have a question for you. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about this question uh, when I was about, you know thinking about because you're in you're in finance, right? I was. You, I left oh, finance. Oh, you left finance. Yeah. What's yeah. The, what's yeah. the? Oh, okay. Um, what I mean, I'm still closely linked to it, but I'm not employed in the financial sector. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, do you think it's like financiers, like money? The Republican Party is really like about money, protecting like deregulation and free market capitalism, right? And so the you know the, I'm a progressive liberal, you know, and so that conservatism doesn't really make any sense to me, you know. I just don't I don't understand it. It's like so is it? Do you think it's a balance between you know, because um, if you're in finance or you're connected to that, but then you also 
want to help people and marginalized communities and stuff like that, which is what the, you know, mainly what the Democratic Party, I feel like is, that's like their whole thing. It's not about free economy, you know, it's, it's that evil socialism, you know, of, of yeah. the government should be helping everybody, you know. Um, I wonder, is there like a balance between that or like how, I don't know, it's just like so polarized now, you know. Um, there is. Yeah, there is a balance. And I, I think there was, there were, there, there were good signs of transformation and change happening before we hit COVID. Um, so I think of a, a couple of things. One that really sticks out is there's a, there's an association of CEOs. Uh, the associate association is called the business Roundtable, And I think it's like 193 CEOs of American companies are part of this association. And they came out with a declaration in October, late 2019 that said, we're redefining the purpose of a corporation. So historically, the purpose of a corporation was maximize profits, <laughs> right? That's it. Like everything just needs to, you, you that's the goal Yeah. Um, at whatever the cost. And they, the declaration of a, the kind of new declaration, new definition of a, of a corporation, purpose of a corporation was all stakeholders. So in this statement, it's like 250 word statement that's signed by 180 of the 193 CEOs. And this is Bezos, uh, you know, uh, Jamie Dimon. I mean, every, every household brand that you could think of, or many of them, their CEOs signed this, identified all stakeholders. We have to be more conscious of vendors, communities, the environment. Um, and actually the word shareholder was, was buried toward the bottom. And so for me personally, someone who has you know, intentionally made the decision to leave corporate um, financial services on this quest for growth, I saw that as a good reinforcement of, of a trend. Now, one example of how that manifested itself pretty, pretty quickly within uh, probably six months of that statement coming out, Goldman Sachs said they're no longer going to underwrite the IPO of any companies that have all male boards. Hmm. So that's not a, you know, that's not a blockbuster uh, deal, but it's a step in the right direction. So that's one thing. And then the other is just there's a there's a very strong movement toward conscious capitalism. Hmm. You-, um, you think of B corporations and stuff like that. You know, if you go in with a skeptical lens, so let's say, okay, well, well it's optics, right? <laughs> they, yeah. they still want to maximize profit. Yeah, sure. I think you look at, um, you look at the younger generation and the younger generation's perspective and philosophy on work life and, and just where they want to spend their energy and time. They, they understand that working 60 to 80 hours a week to make another buck just isn't worth it. And so they have more of a, a, you know, a consciousness about where they're spending their dollars, where they want to earn their dollars. And I think these corporations know that because ultimately it's a, it's a talent race, right? So how can we get the, the, the best minds to join my corporation or join my business? And if philosophically they're not aligning with that purpose, a lot of these younger, they, you know, that side, they'll just side gig it for their entire life and live a full, meaningful life and not go and work yeah. 80 hours uh, a week. Yeah. I, I mean, I think also looking at a skeptical lens, um, but seeing a larger trend, you know, in, in society is that, you know, like, for example, like with Black Lives Matter, when corporations started to, to support it, 
I saw that as a huge um, shift in like the social dynamic of like of our entire American population, you know, like because they, you know, they're advertising, they're they're thinking, you know, corporations, I guess, are not going to go. They're going to follow the mainstream, you know, because that's like what they have to do to 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 sell things, you know, right. So unless they're niche. Um, And so especially the niche ones are like more boutique companies are for younger people, you know, I feel like so or not necessarily. But um, but when I saw that, I was really um, encouraged, you know, to be like, oh, wow, it's it wasn't like the corporations were doing it. You know, of course, they would say that they were doing it for for the society, you know, but it, it was a reflection of a change, a really major change in society. You know that the most most Americans are now acknowledging, you know, the fight for Black Lives, the police brutality, you know, which they hadn't ten like what ten years ago, eight years ago, when the, when the movement actually yeah. started. You know, it was fringe before. Yeah. You know, and so yeah, I I I saw that as encouraging, and and um and to see like yeah, what you're saying, I I feel like it's encouraging, but um I still don't understand <laughs> that how you must well, you know the political divide. Yeah, I mean, I, I, these days it seems like the political divide is really messy, right? It's the, like the lines aren't as clearly drawn as they were um, even, yeah. you know, one year ago or even six months ago. Um, I think people are taking a closer look internally to, to determine, like, what are the what are the values that are important to me and how do those values come through from a political perspective? But it seems really cloudy these days on, on that. But from a, from a, um, you know, like a capitalistic perspective, I think your, your point is really, um, you know, well-defined that corporations, corporations by and large have to appeal to the, to the middle of the bell curve. Yeah. And, you know, these societal trends on um, racial injustice, on, um, you know, equity and inequalities, um, systemic racism, all you know, like all this stuff is being embraced at a, at a just a different level as a, as a society. And I think those corporations, if you want to come in with a skeptical perspective, they understand that they've got to be, they got to, they, they need to adapt. You know, I'm more yeah. hopeful and optimistic that they're doing it for other reasons. <laughs> um, and there are leaders within those organizations that actually believe in this movement. It's not just about making another buck. Um, but regardless, the the outcome is positive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, cool. Sorry. <laughs> that was a, that was a, yeah. No, no, no. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you had said you got better at, at, at uh, asking questions. And yeah. Yeah. Show, show, show your chops yeah, right yeah. there. Um, so, so back to Omiyadi, the, uh, the song film, like what's, what is, uh, the ideal, this isn't going to be a fair question. We're going to ask you, like, what's the ideal outcome? Like what, how, how, what's the dream completion, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, I would say, uh, you know, I, the movie's really it's tricky because is it a music documentary or is it a history documentary or is it something you know it's a social documentary um that's what we're struggling with right now and i think it's all three you know and so um you know the great the biggest outcome i'd like is just some recognition so i can make more movies like this you know about different subjects um or, or that it'll open doors so that i can you know i can do more stuff um 
and artistic and projects. Cause I think like my, a lot of the focus of what I do is, is to blend art with history, you know, to blend art and songwriting and storytelling to kind of connect people with difficult histories, you know, and that's, that's the main thread behind Omoyari, this movie, you know, is to like basically soften people's hearts with music and then unload that difficult message, you know, um, so that it kind of stays, you know, it's like, uh, like, like that movie Inception, where you go like deeper, like two, two, yeah. Yeah. two dreams in and then plant the idea, right. you know, right. so that, right. Right. that's, kind yeah. of, that's kind of the idea is that, um, cause you know, it's progressive people can get as progressive as they want, but I think what we need to do, you know, as people who care about other people is to, is to, is to talk to everybody, you know, and, and try and get them to listen. Are there other uh, topics or other ideas that are front of mind that you'd want to tackle? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I actually made another EP. I was I spent a lot of time in Montana, you know, um, and uh, I'm kind of thinking about like indigenous people and just the early pioneer days of how like pretty much how how rugged it was. Um, it was kind of crazy, you know, how violent it was. It's just like, as you could be a frontier, like trying to trying to get some prospecting done, you know, and then like there's like crow Indians and come and like scalp you. Maybe they're friendly sometimes, but then maybe they're not, you know, or they're like rot, or you have like a, um, or you might just not make it through the winter because you don't have enough food, you know. It's just like <laughs> it's such a crazy time to think. Yeah. Um. Uh, we have all the comforts now, but you know, it was not like this a hundred years ago. And so, and I live in Athens, right. I live in Athens, Georgia. I'm trying to understand like the, the Creek war, like, cause I'm right on the border of basically the, the beginning of the trail of tears, you know, like with the Cherokee, the Cherokee Indians like kind of had, uh, this was their territory. And so, um, so west of Athens, Georgia, where I live was all Cherokee and they were at war with the Creek Indians and the Creeks were supported with, by the British, you know? Um, and so they're wrecking havoc on like, colonists and you know and basically it's just kind of crazy time um trying to really understand like yeah that's uh I, i'm not qualified enough to talk about it right now <laughs> so, oh, no it's fascinating so i mean do, do you just wait for something to catch you and then just like start to explore and if it if it spe it's speaking to you you dig deeper and deeper yeah. and if, if that like what, what does that process look like and then how does that turn into music uh, uh, well, the songs, you know, the songs is when I have to write a song, I usually just pen the words later, you know? So, um, but I love history. I, I read books. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to Dan Carlin's hardcore history. Do you know that one? It's great. I, yeah, I saw it this morning because I saw that you had referenced it. Somewhere. Oh, I did. Yeah. It's, it, they're like long lectures, but, um, they're really in depth and they kind of paint a picture of what it was actually like, you know? instead of just uh the modern summary um yeah i like to imagine it probably it's probably connected to how grateful i am of how i don't have to like fight for my life <laughs> or hunt for my yeah. food you know what i mean um yeah so it's like uh i like to imagine i like to kind of see what it was like back then you know and if that means internment times or world war ii or pacific war or like you know indigenous people in a fighting pioneers you know in the early days of america that's um i like to i like to imagine yeah 
Uh, okay. So, you know, just in closing, um, you know, in the spirit of Ichigo Ichie in, uh, in this moment in time, uh, and on this day in history, you know, I just, I want to say thank you for, for sharing your story. Um, you know, sharing a story about humanity and hope, quest for, you know, a better tomorrow for all of humanity. Uh, I think what you're doing, Kay, is so important. And it impacted me personally. You know, when I initially watched that trailer, it just uh, resonated uh, very deeply in a four-minute uh, YouTube video. Um, and it, it still resonates every single time I watch it. So, you know, I, I value tremendously what you're doing out there. And uh, appreciate you coming, uh, coming here to 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 share. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. I think it's uh, it's a big day today. You know, we have a new president. I feel like um, I feel like despite you know what we've gone through as human beings, we're still we're still getting better and better. It's still better to be alive now than it ever has been. You know, in in America at least. You know, so I think um, let's just keep staying positive. And, uh, and do everything from a place of love. And I think we'll be headed in the right direction. We're all, I think we're always headed in the right direction. You know, it's like that two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. You know, we're always going forward. Thank you yeah. very much. Good to see you, man. Really appreciate it. Good to see you. Too. Okay.